Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can unlock ad-free episodes of the podcast for $3 a month and get bonus episodes on current TV, movies we didn't cover for the podcast, and other topics for $5 a month. It's January, which means Oscar nominations will be coming soon, and we'll be discussing them as soon as we can. And we've also got an episode in the works on the latest season of True Detective, True Detective Night Country. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. That's patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being. We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps here with Genevieve Kosky, Tasha Robinson, and Scott Tobias. So, guys, I'm still on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> I've been here in a few episodes for, for various uh, travel and or really illness-related reasons, so I'm happy to be back. What, what did I miss? This is the first time all four of us have been here this, this year, so mm. this is a, a momentous occasion to talk about two momentous films. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I, I hate to be the one to tell you, Keith, but we got a whole new year. Like, while you weren't looking, while you were gone, we, we just oh, went no. out and bought one. We, oh. we used uh, funds from our uh, generous Patreon suppliers to uh, buy an entire new year without oh. consulting you. Wow. Okay, well, we got to we'll loop me in on these kind of things. So, well, I am I am back for these episodes. Genevieve, refresh my memory. What are we talking about this week and next week? This week and next week, we'll be talking about murder and entertainment. Specifically, we'll be discussing two movies about using murder for sport as the fodder for television programming. We are put in this bloodthirsty frame of mind by Self-Reliance, the first film written and directed by Jake Johnson, best known for his work on The New Girl and as the voice of Peter Parker in the recent animated Spider-Man movies. Johnson also stars as Tommy, a glum Los Angelino who's moved back in with his mother after the end of a long-term relationship. When he's approached on the street by a limo containing Andy Samberg, playing himself, and then invited to participate in a game in which he has to stay alive while strangers hunt him for 30 days, provided they can catch him alone, he agrees, because why not? This mix of comedy, gaming, and killing put us in mind of The Tenth Victim, an Italian film from 1965, directed by Elio Petri and starring Marcello Mastriani and Ursula Andress as near-future participants in a similar deadly game slash entertainment product. So this episode will drop into the pop art infused future world of the 10th victim. Then, assuming we survive, return next week to see what's changed in death and entertainment merging movies over the decades by bringing in self-reliance. We'll be right back after the break. Dopo la fine della Quarta Guerra Mondiale, o della Sesta, secondo la cronologia degli storici, la potenza e la capacità di sterminio delle armi nucleari era aumentata. Ormai era stato raggiunto il punto di saturazione. La pace, quindi, doveva durare per sempre. Ma gli uomini non sono angeli. 
sono soltanto degli esseri molto strani forniti di combattività. L'unica soluzione era di incanalare la violenza dell'uomo. It's always worth considering movies in the context of their time, and newspapers are often as good a place to start discovering that context as any. When The Tenth Victim played Austin, Texas in 1966, an ad for the film appeared in the Austin American Statesman next to one for the new James Bond film Thunderball and below a double feature of Russ Meyer's adaptation of Fanny Hill and something called Diary of a Bachelor. Like those movies, The Tenth Victim carried a for mature audiences tag that's as much a selling point as a warning. It's murderously funny, the tagline promised. The paper's critic, John Buston, wasn't so sure. His review speaks of its sick sort of humor that makes the resultant laughter a bit hollow, often a little nervous, and expressed doubts that it really has much satirical wit before dubbing it, quote, the weirdest, most vaguely disturbing fiction fantasy to appear on the screen this season. Collectively, all that says a lot about The Tenth Victim. On the one hand, it fit right into the vaguely naughty, hip, spy, and science fiction-dominated movies of the time. On the other hand, what the hell was this movie? Set in a near future that looked a lot like the 1960s if everyone wore the hippest fashions of the day and appeared vaguely exhausted by life, the adaptation of Robert Sheckley's story, The Seventh Victim, concerns participants in The Big Hunt a global televised contest in which contestants take turns playing hunters and victims with deadly consequences. But survive 10 rounds and you too could have a lifetime of fame of fortune, or at least $1 million. That's a solid sci-fi premise, but one the 10th victim lets fade into the background much of the time. Marcello Mastrioni plays a perpetually bored Marcello Poletti, a cast-strapped contestant due to play a role of a victim. His hunter is the American Caroline Meredith, played by Ursula Andress, who can check out of the game after making Marcello her 10th kill. Attempting to lure him to a spectacular death, she poses as a journalist studying male sexual habits, but becomes drawn to him herself. Maybe? There's honestly not that much consistency director Elio Petri's film. Petri would earn acclaim a few years later for his hallucinatory political black comedy, Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion. But the 10th victim finds him already on the path to that film. The Tenth Victim uses science fiction premises to send up its own era. Beyond the killing game, its satirical elements include the mandatory removal of older citizens, a religion based on round sunsets, and an absurd extension of the ad saturated media of the era. It's hard to find a coherent point of view within the film. It works as a piece of pop art first, a satire second, and a thriller distant third. But that's part of what makes it so weirdly thrilling. Mastriani could easily be playing the disillusioned hero of La Dolce Vita if that character had emerged from a time machine with peroxided hair. But there's a more obvious influence in Fellini. The present as future production design makes it look like a B-movie alphaville, as does the rush of barbed ideas. If Jean-Luc Godard made a film for the drive-ins, it would probably look like this, but without the glee or up-tempo Moltomad soundtrack. And yet, there's something to that review's quote-unquote vaguely disturbing description. The Tenth Victim might be more concerned with surface than depth, but that too seems pointed. If Marcello's been right all along, if this parade of sensation and homicide is all that life has to offer, what does that say? In the heart of the 1960s, neither Thunderball nor Russ Meyer movies inspired those sorts of questions. It's too bad, darling. You're the only woman that I might have loved, and you ruined it, Carolyn. 
I'm very, Please. very sorry. Very good. Excellent. How much? $10,000. Go on, see my lawyer. Okay, I'll see. I'll talk to him. Smile. Okay. Smile. Hey, come on, now. Big smile. The slogan. The mistake I made was because I didn't drink a double dose of delicious mink tea. All right, everyone. The Tenth Victim, a movie I've enjoyed in the past and, and enjoyed watching again, but it's it, there's a lot to talk about here. Uh, so I built the script uh, for this episode off the script I used for the last episode I hosted, which was Spirited Away. I just want to keep the, the original question I led with for that discussion. Am I wrong to suggest that the logic of this world is inconsistent? <laughs> <laughs> Keith, that's a that's a criticism that just bounces off me because I'm wearing a skin suit of my own design. It's, it's the only the only one in the world. You've never heard of it before, but I am wearing a, a special skin suit that repels any sort of criticism of this movie. I personally just got back from my sundown worshiping ceremony, which is run by a, a guy who also murders in his spare time. So I like I, I haven't really had time to consider this question. <laughs> Scott. Yeah, I, I, I have. I should have some sort of ride joke here, but I, I about well, related. In, in, to, can I maybe something about the crocodile uh, that that uh, that you set up for? Um, I, I don't know. In the absence uh, of a ride joke, can you maybe explain what's going on in this movie a little bit? No, <laughs> that's, 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 my, that's, my you're asking me from you're asking me for something much harder, Keith. I can't do it. That's um, true. That's true. Well, I think it's inconsistent is maybe a kinder word than I do. Incoherent is probably a better oh, wow. uh, word. Um, I mean, and this, is not to, this is not to suggest that I, I don't have all sorts of affection for this movie, but it, it is a film that really drops you into this weird dystopia, I suppose, without really explaining itself terribly, without really kind of laying it out for you. Uh, you just kind of find out bits and pieces about this world along the way and even the rules which are established quite explicitly at the start are kind of hard to parse as well it seems like a production that was a bit seat of the pants to me not not maybe a, a draft or two away from something that uh, might have made a more more sense but i mean there is something to be said for the surprise of the this film of uh, you know if you could say it's inco inconsistent or incoherent you could also say well it's kind of interesting to find out in the middle of the movie what kind of happens to old, older people in this world that just uh -huh. that mm -hmm. suddenly suddenly a door opens and <laughs> a secret door opens and there are a couple of older people just you know being tucked away and oh wow what happens to old old people in in, uh, in the future so you know so you you lose a little bit of what is this world how is it defined what is actually going on how did it become what it became you lose that and you gain you know, a certain amount of shagadelic, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> possibility and excitement. You know, I don't know whether I like this movie more than you do, but I definitely have kind of a more positive impression of it than you do, I, which, you know, you're talking about the your affection for this movie. I get the impression you don't hate it. But that description of it just seems surprising to me, I guess. I mean, to me, a lot of this movie is just kind of explained by the era in which it's made. Like, I, I went looking for director interviews because I was kind of curious whether he had tipped his hand on his inspirations. But I just I see so much of like the nascent French New Wave in this movie. And I kind of see it as a satire. The fact that all of the characters in this movie are just so bored, so jaded with life, like so drenched with ennui. And they're hanging out in these like, you know, super mod looking, like exaggerated 
almost comedically exaggerated spaces. Like I just I see a bunch of, you know, Truffaut and and Godard in this movie. And I see kind of a, a vision of somebody who thinks it's all like funny and overblown and is kind of trying to do it one better. The fact that this all comes down to, you know, it's it's primarily about two people who are too jaded for the world. And so they've taken up killing as a sport because life means nothing. And every time they meet up with each other, it's just kind of a contest between who can care less and they alternate between who's losing that conflict. You know, they, they're they both kind of drawn towards each other and drawn out of their shell as a result. And their shells keep cracking, you know, they, they keep coming out of the ennui. And at the end, they kind of both break out of it, both to their surprise and to some degree to their detriment. To me, the whole thing just kind of reads like a satire of what cinema was at that moment. And the fact that this was, you know, 65, it was really kind of early to be making this kind of thing. If this was a 70s movie, I I think would think that that theme would be a lot clearer. But to me, this, it just kind of like mimics and mocks a lot of the cinema that had just been coming out even a few years before it. Or kind of exaggerates it into cartoonish, you know, bends into cartoonish shapes. I don't, I don't, the only other Petri film I've seen is uh, Investigation of a System Above, Above Suspicion. And it's, and as I kind of allude to in, in the keynote, is it's, it's not the work of a different director. I mean, it is, it, it, that, that film is much more pointed in its satire, but it is, has the same kind of like, and then this happened quality to it. There's this kind of like frenetic hallucinatory quality to it. And I, I think, you know, I think to speak to what you're, you're talking about, it's casting, you know, more Ital- Italian new wave than the French new wave, but casting Mastroianni is, is, you know, it's a pretty big connector to what's been going on with, you know, in his Fellini films. I think in some ways it's kind of the same kind of persona. I mean, sometimes it's just his screen persona to begin with, but I mean, I don't think, I think there is sort of a conscious connection being, being made there as well yeah i I, it it is not consistent in any way (laughs) but i think in some ways that's kind of by design i think it's just sort of like let's just let's just try this you know we have these sets we have these outrageous costumes what's going to happen in this scene do we have a crocodile okay great let's try to incorporate (laughs) that in some way yeah this is my first time with the movie i frankly had not even heard of it before so i was a, a little flummoxed also i like just don't have the same sort of background in French New Wave that you're bringing to this, Tasha. So I was just kind of experiencing it in a vacuum. And it it found it like pretty confounding, particularly like just as a piece of humor. It's like writing this line between satire and farce. And I think like it kind of weakens both sides of, of that by not like really committing to either or committing to both like equally strongly. I don't know. There was so much about this world you know, this premise, this world building that I found interesting, but then it just like it ended up kind of just floating away or not being that important, you know, like the like the parents uh, or you the old people thing, you know, it's just like kind of a, a thing that's thrown in there for, you know, a satirical beat, but it doesn't have ultimately a whole lot of bearing on what happens in the movie. And I and that didn't work for me particularly well, but I can't say it wasn't an interesting movie to watch. And there were definitely, I think for every like, one thing that irritated me, there was one thing I found really interesting and compelling. So on balance, like, it worked out. 
Yeah, Genevieve, as I was rewatching this, and, you know, I, I think it's a really fun film. I'm revisiting this one. Wondered more than anything what you would make of the design. Like, you're, you mm. tend to have an eye for, you know, costumes and, like, elaborate, like, artistic settings. Maybe mm-hmm. more than most of the film critics that, that I know. Like, did you find yourself, like, paying more attention to the costumes? Yeah, I think it's a, a very interestingly costumed uh, film of, of course, that like pink jumpsuit with the, the low back that she wears is very memorable. And of course, the opening bikini fembot inspiring uh, <laughs> uh, bra, can't forget that, and the sunglasses. I mean, there's a lot of like very interesting visual things happening in the costuming and in the set design, production design. But, uh, and this is maybe nitpicky, it, maybe it's even like you know, can be put on the transfer that I watched, but like, I thought it was a very poorly lit film. <laughs> like, like, like there was some really cool sets, but they were lit in such a way that they seemed flat and cheap. It was like kind of indifferently lit, I guess. So it made everything feel like less kind of lush and real and tactile than I would have liked. Um, like his house that we spent some time in being a, a great example. Like, I don't even know what to make of that, that fun house and, and, and how it works. Um, there's like one shot of like a kind of a long room with some weird like art pieces, I guess, on the wall. And I imagine like to bring up a recent film we talked about, like how Yorgos Lanthimos <laughs> would shoot that, you know, and it would have so much feeling and eeriness to it. But here it just felt like it kind of sat there. It's like I'm looking at a background. It didn't feel like I was in a space. And I felt that a lot throughout this movie as far as like the visual of it. And maybe I'm being a little hard on a film from 1965 in, in that way, but... No, I think that's fair to say. I, I mean, it, the production design is wild. The costumes are great. I love the art on the wall. It is kind of... But like when you get to that scene where it's the sunset on the beach, it's like, oh, you could really... Mm-hmm. This movie really comes alive at that moment in a way that, that it, is, it is photographed, you know, really beautifully. As, and then you get to like the, the night scene on the beach where it's like... They just kind of shined a spotlight on the beach, and that's that's all that's all you're really getting from that. So yeah, that, I think that's that's fair to say. But I think the compensating factor is, of course, the music. I love I love this <laughs> Piero Piccioni score. Uh, you know, I'm a sucker for that sort of you know soundtrack, Italian soundtracks, especially from from that era. Uh, but this is uh, you know it repeats the same theme over and over again. Yet I never got tired of that little jazzy uh, upbeat thing, particularly when it was uh, kind of providing an ironic counterpoint to all the all the murder. Although the violence of this is never particularly particularly threatening or upsetting in any way is it well not if you've got a skin suit <laughs> somebody gets <laughs> shot true. like they they go down without blood there are no bullet holes there are yeah. you know people clutch at their chests and uh, fall over in a, a very dramatic way that recalls you know junior high school plays i guess where, where you're just you're not allowed to experience violence out of curiosity genevieve where where or how did you watch this I watched it on Prime streaming. Interesting. We watched it on Tubi, and we actually had a moment in the middle where and my husband was just like, this is a fantastic print. Hmm. Uh, so I'm, I am curious, like, what it would be like going and checking out the version you saw. Like, that beach scene definitely is dim and underlit, but there, are, there were just a lot of places in the print that we watched where the colors are just really popping and the, the crispness of everything is very defined. I mean, I I don't want to say it wasn't like it wasn't crisp or I couldn't or muddy like I couldn't see what's happening. It just felt kind of shallow, like or, or there was no mood to the way that it was shot. I felt it felt very presentational um, mm. to me, and I think that's kind of more what I'm I'm trying to get at. That any like 
poor quality of film. It was, it's more striking as a work of production design and costume design, potentially, than cinematography, basically. Is yeah. That, yes, it's, not very, yes. it's not very expressive, is, is sort mm-hmm. of the, 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 I think it's the, right, the phrase. Yeah. I want to talk about one aspect of the film that I find very interesting is the fact that it is set. I know this plot summary says 2079. Do we ever, I don't know if you actually hear that year in the film, if I'm not mistaken. Perhaps it's taken from, from the book, but um, it's set in the future, which looks an awful lot like 1965. <laughs> um, what do you make of that choice? I mean, I, I, there is sort of a, as I mentioned before, is there's a, a resemblance to Alphaville in some ways, which kind of also uses like parts of contemporary Paris to be future Paris. Although I think there's much more of an al- uh, of an effort made to make it look futuristic in Alphaville beyond the production, you know, the costumes and, and the uh, the sets in this film. There's not a whole lot of found future like there is in, in Godard's film. I mean, I love a futuristic phone booth in, in any movies, like, like like watching any movie today. If there's a, a, a phone booth of the future, I'm, I'm going to be interested. The way films of the past try to translate their present into a future that is not what our present is, is, you know, always interesting and a little jarring. But again, really fun from a production design uh, perspective. Yeah, it reminded me a lot of Alphaville, maybe even more so of uh, Fahrenheit 451, to some degree, The Prisoner, you know, which are all kind of doing that like future as present, but just more mod kind of thing. It just it seemed like a, a, a wave at the time in terms of like the the future. I, I think a lot of science fiction films have taken up the like the future is going to be cold and white and sterile. And then there's just kind of like a counter movement that's like the future is going to be like in funny shapes and bright colors. This is this is what it should look like because we should all be embracing plastic blow up chairs in like a, a vivid turquoise. I kind of love that outdoor bar that he goes to mm-hmm. where, you know, everybody sits on what kind of look like blow up chairs. And then the music is two saxophonists like <laughs> on cubes, flopped, flopped over <laughs> cubes, just draped over them in the most, you know, beat poet fashion possible. Oh, it's interesting to me with this film of just, I feel like there's so much to engage the eye and, and the mind in terms of incidental details, in terms of mm. what the sets look like, and, and in terms of things like the old couple, which is one of my favorite little moments in the movie because it's not really incorporated in the plot because it's just something that is just kind of put in there as a detail. It's the, it's the stuff in the foreground that I think you want explained a little bit more that <laughs> that doesn't really ha- it just doesn't happen and it can be kind of frustrating in terms of just trying to like figure out important things about the world because i mean this is a this is this is a satire partly about about television and and uh celebrity and and you know how does all of that work i mean i think we're given some sort of indication that it's important and that people watch it but do we we never see anybody watching if this is a, like a really compelling like reality type of show i don't think you're really given a, a sense of that a, at all well the hunt itself isn't televised it's just that she is like uh, she's using a commercial sponsorship yeah which i like that, that part of that yeah. stuff all works out. i think that stuff is actually quite well Mm-hmm. executed you know the payoff to it is quite is really good and i like the fact that they choose this location that's near the coliseum and which is going to kind of give it that a little bit of spark and i, I you know and I, I think that i think the the end you know when you get to the point where they have their actual kind of confrontation 
in that setting with kind of this done for commercial purposes. I think that that's all quite well executed. But I mean, I'm looking right now like uh, Wikipedia, the plot on Wikipedia starts with <laughs> in the 21st century, World War Three has recently ended. What? Where is that? Did I miss the cut? Where? Where that? I think, I think it's it, in the novel or the short story. Yeah, which, I mean, whichever. this is like uh, that yeah. is that's not what happened. And then it says, in order to prevent a potential fourth war, those with violent tendencies are given an opportunity to engage in the big hunt. It's like no, that, that we no that they that that we were not. That's not explained to us. I, I, not in the cut that I saw. I think that's conflating out of the the story or something. I, I don't know where that comes from. I did want to talk a little about the degree to which this movie seems to have been a, a big inspiration for the Purge movies. Mm. You know, there there's there's no hint of World War Three in this movie that I can see, but they do talk a lot about how licensed murder around the world like channels everybody's aggressions and ensures that you know there's no crime anymore and everything is peaceful because the people who, in society who are aggressive are allowed to express it by killing other people and being killed by other people which is just not a, a mechanic that i think would work at all to uh, forestall crime but but whatever it it sounded as they go on and on and on about how great it is that we've found this way to stop people from being aggressive i just kept hearing lines from the purge you know between that and the direct ways that this movie influenced the first austin powers movie you know from the boob guns to you know 1 million dollars <laughs> It's kind of a run for your money, whether, you know, Austin Powers or uh, the Purge films got more out of this film. <laughs> I think I mean, I, and I guess the other thing about the Purge is that all the stuff about the purpose of the hunt, much like the Purge is sort of a cover for a government that is sort of totalitarian and vicious, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So they're connected in that way too. I think in the in, I think in substantive ways the connections are maybe a little stronger between this and the Purge movies and this and Austin Powers, which I which I ended up which I actually ended up saw recently again with my my kids and I, I don't know I don't know about that one, <laughs> but uh, 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 but but I, I how that how that play I, I don't did, did, know did, did your kids love it they did oh not really love okay it. no I feel the, like the, the younger the, generation is Austin Powers pilled but maybe that's uh, yeah I, th I thought. I thought it would play and it just it did not play unfortunately uh, yeah even for me it was like oh boy but uh that, that's neither here nor there as far as like the game you know or the hunt being used to to tamp down violent tendencies it is interesting to me how that kind of translates to everyone being so bored and disaffected and the really passionless romance at the center of of this movie and it makes me wonder if there's some sort of line being drawn between the idea like you know if you take away our ability to like be violent and be angry and all the uh sort of emotions associated with killing does that extrapolate outwards to being able to express any sort of passionate feeling, positive or negative? And I didn't think of that while watching the film, but I'm thinking of it here while we're talking about it. And I think that kind of helps me click into it a little more, particularly the romance element, which we haven't really talked about yet, but it's weird, right? <laughs> when this oh, film turns totally into like sort of a, a marital satire in its final yeah. 10 minutes, if I had some sort of idea like what its big scheme was up until that point, it completely loses me then. Not that I mind any of that. I think it's kind of it's really fun. I like the the forcible marriage airline or whatever whatever the final setting of this of this film is, but it does seem to be 
coming in out of a totally different movie in some ways. Again, most of this movie just falls entirely into place for me as kind of a satire of some of the contemporaneous film movements. But the place that it ends just leaves me baffled. Like, I don't know what's going on with that final shot, like what we're supposed to get out of that. I'm not really sure about the whole trapping somebody into marriage by getting them on a Pan Am airline specifically, you know, as we see the logo in just, you know, a huge way in the background. But a lot of the the romantic themes, I don't know. I go back to the line in I, somewhere in the first act, I want to say, that reminded me of Zardoz more than anything, uh, where the announcer talks about, you know, we don't need to control birth rates because we're controlling death rates. And when we can increase death rates and telling everybody to live dangerously, but by the law, I don't know whether that like specifically obviates sexual passion. We certainly see people showing passion for other things like worshiping the sunset and jumping into the ocean. I think it's just these two, you know, these these two people are cynical, weird and disaffected. And that's why they're not really suited for anything except murder. I'm not sure that I want to extrapolate what the rest of society feels about like love and passion based on these two very strange weirdos who enjoy manipulating each other. And particularly on Marcello's character with his wife, he's been trying to divorce for six years and mistress he does not like at all and weird hobbies and habits that include you know, proclaiming his love to the world's ugliest animatronic. <laughs> I love that thing. I don't know what that is, so I do like it. Yeah. When, when y'all I, are I, talking I, about, like, not feeling enough explanation in this movie, I'm like, eh, I don't need everything about this society to be explained to me. But I do want Tommaso explained to yeah. me, because <laughs> what the hell is that thing? What's it gonna for? Say, I was going to say, please refer to it as Tommaso. It has a name. <laughs> Tommaso, his only friend. I want explanations about some things and not others. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I, lo- I like the incidental detail in the movie. I don't want that explained. Mm-hmm. I do feel like just the parameters of the world of the film could have been more sharply a- outlined. I mean, I I agree with you. Like, Scott, I was n- nodding vigorously when you say, like, this is a film of, like, incidental details. Because, like, yeah, there's, like, like I was saying, there's so many, like, little individual things I can pick out as being really interesting. But the fact that they don't really add up to anything is, is like a problem for me. You know, it's, I don't think it's like there's big details and small details and the and the big details aren't done well and the small details are. I think it just like doesn't cohere into something because it's not interested in cohering into something. It's interested in like making jokes. I mean, what do you what do you end up with if you just take this as the Austin Powers of its day, you know, mm-hmm. as as a movie that is just a kind of a collection of set pieces and gags, potentially mm-hmm. referencing a lot of, uh, you know, a- Italian movies that I haven't seen. I mean, I think it probably works better for me, like taking it that way. I think it is maybe harder to take it that way when it's about murder, <laughs> you, you know? <laughs> and I mean, as already said, like it really like sanitizes that that murder in, in various ways. So it's like maybe easier to engage with it just as like a fun farce than if it were like doing serious satirical stuff. 
I don't know. I, I guess I could have just used a little a little more oomph to what this all means in the end. And as far as like the the marriage playing at the end, I mean, I just took it as a culmination of the hunt. She got her victim, you know, and it's like, obviously, I don't like the idea that every woman in this movie is just trying to get a husband to provide for her and steal so she can steal his money, which both uh, his ex-wife and mistress are, are doing. You know, there's a real antagonistic relationship between the, the sexes that uh, informs that marriage at the end. But marriage planes. <laughs> I don't believe that Carolyn's in it for the money. I she might be oh, in no, it. No, no, no. But but I'm saying just as far as like the transactional nature of mm. uh relationships in this movie, for her like the hunt is the transaction, the way that the money was for the other women. Yeah, I mean there's a very cynical idea of, you know, she didn't kill him, she married him, which is practically as bad. Uh, <laughs> it, you know, it, it certainly that's what his face says is he's kind of his freedom has been murdered instead. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's it's a very like newspaper comic like the Lockhorns style <laughs> view of marriage <laughs> as like a thing that women do to trap men and and you know, prevent them from like living their their free and easy like 60s swinger kind of lives so i you know i guess it is sour there but for me again that ending comes really kind of out of nowhere and i have a hard time judging the movie by it because it just seems so tacked on like not part of a big theme about what she's trying to do so much as like a punchline that just doesn't fit the joke that we've been told so far it's a very strange ending and are we to believe that the person pointing a gun at them shoots them? You know, we hear just, a gunshot. <laughs> well, they, they broke, Does, I guess they broke the rules, right? Doesn't somebody have to step in if they violate the rules? I think no. that we have to put that under stuff we don't know about this world. I think if we talk about it, we're going to figure it out. Let's just keep going. <laughs> we're going to crack this one open, guys. <laughs> it's a very strange But, but, but am I, I, am I uh, alone and not kind of thinking they have a nice flirty sort of energy towards the end of this movie? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 am I supposed to be no, left I, cold No, I think that's fair, this? but like everything else, it's like, you know, where, where is this coming from and, and why is it happening? I think it's, a, I mean, you know, you have these people that, you know, it's not always, not every time you put people as attractive as Ursula Anderson, Marcel, Mastriani together, <laughs> do you get chemistry? But you know, it's kind of hard not to with these two in this movie. Well, let me ask you all this, because I think this may be one of the big things that the movie turns on in in terms of how you read it. For me, the moment where he understands that she really has lured him here to kill him, she really has successfully trapped him, and he starts laughing and congratulates her and, and seems happy to be there and like even even like does the Ming T slogan like directly to the camera. Like he, I took that as sincere appreciation in some ways of how well she'd played the game that they were playing. Now, on some level, he's baiting her because he knows that she's, he knows something that she doesn't know about the gun. But I did take that as kind of a sincere show of emotion after a movie full of him not having emotions about his wife, not having emotions about the person that he's just murdered or the person who's coming to to murder him not having emotions about his mistress who he doesn't care for like he just seems so cynical and outside of the world and in that moment he seems to genuinely enjoy what's going on 
and to some degree enjoy being with her. If you take it all as just another cynical ploy on his part, then this movie maybe kind of doesn't hold together at all. If you take her response to him and her unwillingness to kill him, but her deciding to go through with it anyway as, you know, a, a ploy and her emotions as fake, then I truly don't know what this movie is. I believed that they both had sincere feelings for each other. They were just kind of like bound up and limited in their own cynicism and their own removed from the world. Did you guys take that relationship and, and those reactions differently? I feel like we're not giving enough information, frankly, to make any sort of decision along those lines, too. Or, or maybe the information's conflicting. And it, it, maybe that's yeah. that's that's the thing. It's less that like they're not well matched and more that they just have different ideas and come from different contexts surrounding marriage. Like there's even sort of the detail about divorce is legal in America where she's from, and it's not in Italy, which is why he had to get an annulment and why it took so long, I guess. Sort of another element of this world I could have maybe used a little more information about, especially as it pertains to to where they end up. But like, I agree, Tasha, that I do feel like some real like connection, romantic connection between them, but it gets really snarled up in their different ideas of marriage. And I think that, again, that is part of what makes the ending feel so abrupt because we get a lot of his feelings about marriage and we don't really see that desire expressed by her. It's It seems to just be like something we take by default, maybe because she is a woman, you know, in this world in this time. So that is considered the default. But yeah, I mean, there is some real feeling or heat, you know, to their interactions in, in the movie. But as far as like a relationship or a love story, you know, he said that's like his final line. Like, why'd you have to go and ruin this beautiful love story? So yeah, something about this world, if I had a little more information about, I might feel stronger about that ending instead of just confused. <laughs> this is kind of exactly the sort of film that that becomes a cult film to, you know, the sort of like imperfect thing that was overlooked in its time, but has so much weird you know, interesting elements that its imperfections are kind of part of its appeal. I mean, it almost you know, if you were to, were to design a, a film in 1965 to become a cult film in the in the the 90s, uh, 80s, and 90s, or whatever, uh, it would probably look a lot like this, right? I, I feel like it's of a sort of a piece with a lot of films from that era that became cult movies. I mean, there's Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, and there's you know, the, maybe those Seijin Suzuki movies, and and uh, Black Lizard or but you know, there's like a, a bunch of like movies of this type that just have a have a look to them that's so irresistible. It's kind of it's kind of I guess it would be for us retro future appeal that uh, you know I think you can kind of engage in and that is more that that kind of sticks to the ribs in a way. I mean, like that, that's kind of a thing about cult movies. I think is is that many of them tend to be flawed but they have a sort of a quality they have a stick to the ribs kind of quality just something about the tone or the look of the of, of the film is uh unique and, and memorable and something that you're that you know is not going to get buried in everything else that you see over the next months and years and decades i also think that the combination of that presentational quality that you were talking about like the straight facedness and not tipping its hand and the sort of episodic quality of a whole lot of different bits and pieces that don't necessarily feel like they fit together like the whole thing was written kind of exquisite corpse style i 
I think it's not just, you know, movies from that era that became cult films that have all of this, but movies from other eras. Uh, you know, I, I cited Zardoz. I think Zardoz has a lot of the same, you know, presentational quality directing mixed with absolute absurdism and like, what the hell am I looking at? And uh, proclamations presented as, you know, just sort of fait accompli, even though they make us boggle in terms of what they're doing. This also reminded me a lot of Logan's run, you know, the whole mm-hmm. sequence where he stops at the the relaxation rest stop and visits what's apparently, uh, I presume, a massage artist slash prostitute mm-hmm. who asks him if he wants to listen to like comforting wolf howls or <laughs> perhaps the sound of a rocket taking off or the sound of people like crinkling intimate clothing, which just reminded me of the ASMR movement. Uh, this movie reminds me of everything is what I'm saying. I, I just I feel like it kind of feels like a Rosetta Stone to like cult cinema and satirical cinema in a lot of ways. I mean, there would be so many movies that we could have paired it with throughout the ages, too. I mean, it does. It does. It, so I think you're right in that respect. I mean, we talk about Austin Powers. We could certainly talk about The Hunger Games and any of those sort of uh reimaginings of uh most dangerous game like scenarios there's a lot here that would come up elsewhere it's kind of a proto something or other it's a proto type of a bunch of uh, different movies i think that's fair and perhaps even a prototype for the movie that we'll be discussing with our next episode you'll have to tune into the next episode to find out whether it is or not or of course it is we wouldn't have chosen it otherwise right <laughs> right all right all right everyone uh we'll be right back after the break Now it's time for feedback. Before we get to it, we want to shout out Film Spotting, the Next Picture Show's Mothership podcast, hosted by Adam Kempinar and Josh Larson. As we record this, Adam and Josh recently recorded their own annual year-end rap party. I, too, was surprised they both named Megan as their favorite film of the year, but I appreciate the boldness of that choice. Uh, how about how about you? How about you? None of us were at the rap party, right? It was in L.A. It was in L.A., yes. I, I, yeah. Yeah, I, will, I like the idea of Megan being their fa- favorite film because it's just like, okay, stop. Stop right here. It's a ge- you, <laughs> Stop you, in you, January. You immediately start like January 5th or yeah. something and you're like, I don't need to see anything else. <laughs> Megan, this, nothing's <laughs> going to top this. I really thought it was going to be Malignant again. I thought that they both loved that movie so much that they were just going to keep nominating <laughs> as best film of the year every year. I- I love Malignant though, so don't 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 speak ill of Malignant. <laughs> hey, I'm not dissing Malignant, but I'm also not dissing Megan, which I thought was a, oh, a no, fun time in the exact same way. Oh no, for sure, but 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 the absurdity. Not to explain my own joke, but the absurdity of <laughs> the best film of the year. <laughs> I, I don't I don't I understand. As everybody who listens to our best film of the year episode knows, it was my number one film of 2023. <laughs> Can I put Genevieve on the spot here? Because uh, we the three of us did did a did the best of the year no. episode. What? Yeah, just tell me one film. What was the film? What was the one film that you saw in the year 2023 that blew your mind? Bro, do you even watch movies? (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, the vast majority of the new movies I watched last year were for this podcast. So, Mm. like, it just kind of feels redundant, uh, I guess. And, like, there's so many things. Like, I still haven't seen Killers of the Flower Moon. I'm sorry. I don't know. I, you know me. I've never right. liked doing top 10 lists. But put on the spot, I'd say probably Barbie. Unlike you, I will put Barbie ahead of Oppenheimer. So that, that is, I guess, maybe the one strong stance I am willing to take in, in this group on 2023's films. 
Well, you know who else put Barbie ahead of Oppenheimer? The movie going public. If right. you look at uh, box office totals, like it's 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 not really close, you know, despite yeah. the the Barbenheimer. They won the award yeah. for best achievement of the box office or whatever it is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The Golden Globes I, gave out an award. What for a us. weird <laughs> award category. Thank you, Scott, for making me go to bat for the most heavily promoted, marketed uh, <laughs> film of last year as it's my favorite. Bold. That's a bold choice. <laughs> it's a bold choice. What could argue? You're the only one that's that's really in touch with, with the viewing public. The rest of us are, you know. I want a better no. answer. <laughs> right. well, well, we'll ask you again next week. How's that sound, Genevieve? Yeah, Go watch every movie. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm we'll frantically scrolling through through our episodes last year to see what. Actually, it might be Megan. I really liked Megan. Hey, Megan's good. I, I, I'm not, once again, to explain my joke, I wasn't saying Megan was bad. <laughs> uh, okay, so feedback. Uh, beyond the feedback we're going to get from everyone defending Megan, even though I like it. Uh, we always say we like it when our listeners write in about anything film-related. Tasha, we've got one of those. Can you read it? Yeah, absolutely. Jerome writes, last year I finally joined the party at Letterboxd. This has meant building my back catalog of viewing and deciding on a personal approach to the five-star rating. I have a friend who will say when walking out of the cinema, that's a three and a half star for me, and my heart breaks a little. One of the things I've loved about your podcast is your resistance to using a reductive rating or ranking system, which leads to much more meaningful discussion. So what's your why behind this approach? How do you feel about having to give ratings for your various publications, including, I might add, for the reveal? Could ratings and rankings be net negative for film culture? We have a whole long history there, don't we? Mm-hmm. Going back to the AV Club, where we had no ratings and we had ratings. And then when we did the Dissolve, we went with ratings to begin with. And then, you know, Scott and I, with the reveal, we, we chose to do the five-star system. And there was arguments over the five-star system versus the four-star system and letter There were arguments and- back in the AV Club days when we were trying to figure out what system to use. And I, boy, I argued vociferously against great letter grades. And I yeah. still hate that system with a with a passion. Yeah, you're probably grades. right. All these years later, I was what? saying, you no. know, it's, you know huh? it's whatever. Mm-hmm. Tasha, you're, Tasha, what, what, what's, what? what harm is there of me saying that Tasha's wrong now? I, I mean, know. you said I, I, I was wrong at the time and we used letter grades, but I, oh, well, I still hate them. Yeah. Although I do, I mean, I like the fact that they're more nuanced, you know, than a, for instance, four star, only whole star system. I, the the more reductive a rating system gets, mm-hmm. the more I dislike it. Letter grades I dislike because they just have such a kind of like parochial, like condescending tone to them. You know, literally like you think you're the the film director's teacher. And you're, you know, to, to be all indigo girls about it, you're grading their performance. So I don't like them tonally, but I, I do like a more nuanced system. And, you know, if I if I was working for the reveal, I would have argued for five stars and half stars and, you know, maybe quarter stars. I want to I want to pioneer the first quarter star system. Let's just <laughs> let's just pile on the nuance. That's an idea. But I mean, I think, you know. Uh, we kind of re- going back decades now at this point, but boy, we're old. Uh, but I think we kind of introduced the grades at all reluctantly because it was sort of pure not to. It's like you had to read a review to get the opinion. And I, what an what a naive day it was when we oh, thought, boy, yeah. you know, yeah. you can't oh, not we, rate these days. <laughs> well, 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 it's also kind of like you know we got to make sure they read the whole review versus like you know you know not just seeing it on Rotten Tomatoes and drawing drawing conclusions from from like the one line summary there. If you read the one line and don't just look at the score. You know, oh. or even if you look at the individual, you know, rotten versus fresh and don't just look at the cumulative score, like 
When Jerome asks if ratings and rankings are net negative for film culture, I like what I immediately go to is how Rotten Tomatoes has become, you know, the sabermetrics system for film where you don't get any of the nuance. You don't form a relationship with any critic. You just look at what's the numerical score that all of this has been boiled down to in the end. But when I mean, you, it's the worst f- sabermetrics, though. It's terrible. Oh, because, yeah. Because it's so it's because <laughs> no, it's. Thumbs up, thumbs down gives you, you know, nothing because <laughs> because there's no gradation at all. It's just that's it's awful. I mean, I, I think it just I think it's the, the answer to the question is always kind of a depends. I mean, I think the hope that you have is that, you know, maybe the ratings are going to give you a certain thumbnail sketch of what a person thinks about a movie. Uh, but then, you you know, your responsibility is to, is to try to back it up with as much substance as possible. And I think if you find yourself leaning on ratings as sort of a crutch to keep yourself from, you know, going deeper in, into movies or, or, or something like that, that's not great. But uh, but I, I should hope that uh, that's something we were able to avoid at our publications, uh, past and present. Two things. First, I wish Matt Singer were here to weigh in on the idea of uh, film rankings, particularly binary film <laughs> ratings and how reductive they can be. Because, of course, Siskel and Ebert, thumbs up, thumbs down, sort of right. a classic film rating binary going back, you know, well before internet uh, uh, film criticism and, and letterboxed and all that. And then that made me think of, have I ever told you guys about how I grew up like seeing movies with my family and our whole rating numbers thing i don't think so let's hear it so yeah like growing up going this is more my aunt and uncle's thing but i used to spend summers with them so we'd see a lot of movies and the rule when we went to go see movies as a family is you don't talk as you're leaving the theater as we're walking out to the car you get like a couple minutes to think about it and then three two one say your number of the of the film (laughs) one through ten uh, you know, all at the same time, everyone say their number. And then we discuss the film. So you like open up with, you know, I thought this was a seven, I thought it was a three, you know, and then that is kind of like, creates room for discussion, just sort of the, it's an opening salvo, I guess. And I think Siskel and Ebert is kind of the same way, you know, with the thumbs up or, th- or, or thumbs down, you know, it's just an, an entry into discussing your differing opinions on a film. So I think where this gets tricky, especially in our modern era, is when you are, I guess, translating like ratings to recommendation, you know, and like, you should only see this movie if it's rated this many stars or above. Otherwise, it's not worth it. And and I think this is maybe a little bit the vibe on Letterboxd. I don't hang out there as much. But I think there is maybe a little more acceptance of ratings as a starting point rather Mm -hmm. than, than an ending point for film discussion in that context. But broadly, culturally, I don't think that's where we're at anymore, unfortunately. (laughs) One of the things I really enjoy about Letterboxd in terms of ratings is I like I don't care as much. And here's me reversing exactly what I just said about uh, Rotten Tomatoes. I don't care as much about individual people's uh, star scores. What I care about is that each film, they they show you a little graph of how people rated it as a whole. And I find it very, very interesting to look at polarizing films and just see what that scale looks like, you know, because it's almost always some form of bell curve. But where the bell starts and ends and, you know, whether sometimes it's a reverse bell curve in, oh, yeah. in cases where, 
where there's a racial element or a female lead or, you know, something else polarizing. I just find it really interesting to see not just a number, but like sort of a heat map of how people in the aggregate have responded to it, because that's not necessarily useful data for me in terms of should I see this film or no, but interesting data in terms of, oh, this is one of those movies where people who love it really love it and people who don't really, really hate it. I, I just I think that that's always I, interesting to see. I mean, to, to me, that's where Letterbox has everyone beat. Like letter the 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 metrics at Letterbox are fantastic. <laughs> I mean, just like you know the, the the aggregate of all of the users coming together. You go, you look at at a page and see and see that breakdown as as you say, kind of a bell curve. Often fascinating to look at. You know, then you get then if you are if you subscribe to, to them, you get all kinds of data coming back to you at the end of the year and you can kind of check on your own stuff and other people's stuff. I mean, to me, that's a huge, huge part of Letterboxd and it is obviously connected to their use of a rating system. So in that sense, it's quite good uh, for film culture because you really get a great sense you know, stepping back much more so than Rotten Tomatoes, you know, where where people's heads are at on a particular movie, you know, and then you can see what your friends gave it and kind of explore their reviews. It's just, it, to me, it's like very addicting. I'm uh, kind of happy that Letterboxd is kind of seems to have taken off of late because I think they, I think they, that's always been a strength of theirs. It's just the, the metrics part of it has been really, really good. I like, I always go these phases where I, I update it religiously and then kind of forget about it and get lazy or mm-hmm. just, and then, and then like, like I start to feel guilty. It's like, well, why, what, what does it even matter? You know, my data is all scre- skewed now, but anyway, I've, I've been really good this year. So I don't know. Um, uh, I'm, I'm on there's my usual KFIP 3000. If anyone out there, uh, wants a, wants a, a, a fairly wants a piece r- of regular you. poster. Yeah. <laughs> want, you want a piece of me? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I will say this one thing in in favor of rankings like we don't we don't do ratings at Polygon, but I have to ask everybody who reviews films for me to come up with a Metacritic rating because we submit those. I found it very interesting back in the day when Metacritic did their own numbers, like they would actually read the the review and decide what they thought it translated into number wise for anybody who didn't actually have a ranking system. And we saw a lot of that in the early AV Club days you know, before we instituted a rating system, which they would just convert to to numbers. So it became very interesting to see how somebody else reading your review thought you ranked it. And as somebody who's been in the position of like mentoring a lot of young up and coming uh, film writers over the years, I have found it very interesting to ask people for a Metacritic rating and see how it compares to my impression of what they wrote. And it becomes a useful kind of, are you saying what you believe you're saying? Like, are you communicating to others what you think you're communicating? And having to think about things in those terms, I think, maybe sharpens us all a little in terms of, did you have that? I walked out of the theater going, eh, three and a half stars uh, response, but then you're kind of bitter. So the review comes across as unrelentingly negative and it sounds a lot worse than it is. Or maybe you focused in on one aspect you liked and it reads as more positive. Comparing those two things uh, has been just a very useful kind of teaching tool for me. But overall, I, I do, in fact, think ratings and rankings are net negative for film culture. <laughs> I think they're a net negative for film culture, but they can be a positive for film discussion, I think. Like like any tool, it depends how you use it, man. 
I love your family system. I, I love the ritual <laughs> yeah. of that. I, I love the rigor of forcing everybody to, to behave in this fashion. I just absolutely love every aspect of that. Oh God, should we do this? Should we start doing that? That we, why don't we do that with self-reliance? Like we don't, none of us know what we, without a self-reliance. Should, should, should we just open with our number? Yes. No. Let, let's do it. Like seriously, when we do self-reliance in the next episode, we could explain the system and then just That's and then do a three, two, one, and give kind a number. Of awesome. Yeah. yeah okay. Yep. I'm, we're doing one it one time only. I'm into it. Yeah. Well, okay. That was a long discussion, so we're just going to do one letter this week. Uh, we always appreciate it, however, when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll talk about self-reliance and, once again, The Tenth Victim. Look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. You can find us on nextpictureshow.net and at Blue Sky at The Next Picture Show if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next week, look, if you're going to participate in a deadly television game, be sure to stick with it until the tenth round. You'll regret it if you don't. <laughs>